0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Alternative Assets podcast with Stefan von Imhoff, bringing you unique investment ideas worth exploring. If you're new here, this is not another podcast about stocks or venture capital. No, sir. This is about a wide world of investment opportunities that aren't discussed as much. Before we start, remember, you can find a transcription of this episode, along with all past issues of our weekly newsletter, at our website, alternativeassets.club. Now let's dive in.
1: Let's start with, so you're the founder and CEO, is that correct?
2: I'm technically not a founder. I've I've kind of emerged into a a founder role. The, The backstory in Collectible is interesting, right? So Collectible hasn't always been a fractional ownership platform. Collectible actually was the number one rated sports auction data aggregator from 2014 through 2018. You would go onto the Collectible app. You would type in a sports collectible, and it would pull up all the auction results dating back, I believe, to like the mid nineteen seventies. From that, we had over twenty one thousand users. We had a, a pretty good reputation in the sports collectibles industry. We had connections with auction houses and dealers and professional athletes and agencies. We're, you know, we're we're, we're in a pretty good space in this industry, right? So, you know, the in two thousand eighteen, the founding team. And I I should probably give a little bit of a hat tip to the guys who founded the original Collectible, a guy by the name of Jason Epstein, who's currently our chairman, and another gentleman by the name of David Yokin were the original founders of Collectible. When they saw the fractional ownership opportunity, they decided to pivot the company away from just pure data aggregation to a fractional ownership model. And they set out for about 18 months to... Find the right CEO who had the right skill sets to hopefully kind of lead the business through that transition. And you know, my my personal background is I worked in Wall Street for about 10 years. I was uh, at a New York City-based hedge fund covering private and public companies and consumer and media, retail, and sports. I also had a sports entrepreneurship background that co-founded the only still in existence and profitable minor league football model called the Spring League. So I had this market meet sports entrepreneurship coupled with the fact that I had been around the industry and the hobby my entire life. My, My dad collects and so, you know, I, I knew a lot about the industry. I collected baseball cards as a, you know, as a kid, like every other kid in America. And I had this dream of retiring by the age of thirty-five off of my baseball card stack, which <laughs> obviously I found that was completely worthless in the junk wax era. So, you know, I had I had the, you know, this interesting, interesting background of sports entrepreneurship, met with financial markets, met with industry knowledge about the hobby. I happen to be like a lot of people on Wall Street. After about a decade on Wall Street, you get a little burnt out, and you want your next opportunity. I put out some feelers that I was looking for opportunities. I connected with the guys at Collectible, and I fell in love with the fractionalization
1: component. Oh, at that point, yeah. had they started fractionalizing, or did you kind of help them get there?
2: Yeah, correct. So at this point, it was really concept only, right? Got it. They had started to, to develop a mobile application, but really hadn't been through the whole SSE qualification process. When I took over the business, primarily concept, and you know, so I worked alongside Jason Epstein, who's the chairman, to kind of... Uh, get the company over the qualification elements, and ultimately build out a team to really advance the business to where it is today. Let's
1: actually dive into that. People think of these marketplaces; they think they just happen on their own. And you know, from from doing a deep dive on um, the folks at Rally, you know, I, yeah. I know that navigating the legal issues and the SEC is like a huge part of the the humps they had to overcome. So. What was the journey like you know, in the early days, and like, what were some of the, the legal considerations that you had to deal with, just the nuances of the entire legal SEC kind of waters?
2: It's complicated. It's not easy to do what companies like Collectible and Rally Road, any of these fractional platforms, it's not easy to do what we're doing. And it's certainly not sexy, right? It's a labor of love in a lot of ways, just getting to the point where you can provide fractional opportunities to consumers. On one hand, I really appreciate the process. As someone who's been around the industry for a while, you, you hear these stories of bad actors or fraudulent claims, trimming. You, you you hear you know you hear that you know one of the in my opinion one of the biggest things holding back the sports collectibles industry are you know sort of confidence issues around the industry at large. Can you trust the dealers? Can you trust the supply? You know how much authentication have items been through? So on one hand, I thought, look, you know it, operationally it's not fun to go through. But it does provide a huge degree of consumer confidence that the items that are being presented to consumers on the platform are ones that have gone through a lot of checks and balances to ultimately get into consumers' hands. to, To go through the process a little bit, it took us five, six months of back and forth work with our securities attorney, with the SEC. You have to think a lot about the business and the business model early. That's different from a lot of startups, obviously. A lot of startups they get, you know, an MVP out the door and they iterate on the fly. With the SEC approval process, you have to lay out a lot of advanced thinking. You know, have a business model and a business structure in place that the SEC deems to be secure for consumers. So in that end, it does force you to use your imagination and to think few futuristically about what the business could look
1: like. And not to mention just the I mean, legal, legal costs aren't cheap, right? Um, legal costs aren't cheap. I'm sure you legal spent a lot of on, on lawyers on that. But you, you also probably brought a lot to that world because you came from Wall Street. So you, you probably knew who to talk to at the SEC, how to make things happen, that sort of thing?
2: A little bit. I don't necessarily have contacts at the SEC directly. I do understand financial markets well. I understand a lot of the basic and widely accepted principles of the financial markets that I thought that the industry really needed and ways to advance the ball forward. So when it came to structuring the business model, I definitely came with my ideas and thoughts in terms of, you know, what what are some pain points of the industry? What are some pain points from the seller's perspective? What are some pain points from the buyer's perspective? So I was able to bring those viewpoints to the marketplace, which I do think helped formulate our initial business model. A lot of the concepts that we brought to the table are ones that I think are, in a lot of ways, revolutionary to the industry. They're not unique overall right this concept of retained ownership we can talk about this in a little bit but when I first got into this I couldn't wrap my head around the fact that there is this multi-billion dollar industry where there's almost zero seller flexibility if you think about Wall Street for instance right you know the idea that people can own stocks right yep. and maybe you bought a stock at 10'll uh, make up numbers and it appreciated to 13 and you know you want to take it you want to take some profits but you don't want to sell the entire position you think it's going to go higher but you want to sell a little bit. For liquidity, maybe you want to invest in a different idea. That concept of selling partial ownership and not the full position never existed before. And that that, that was something I thought was such an obvious fix that if we could figure out how can consigners or sellers sell partial ownership, get liquidity, maybe reinvest in other areas but also maintain some upside in their collectibles. That was something that I thought was really important to the industry. And one thing that I think collectible uniquely does that no other fractional company provides at the moment, but also no other auction house, eBay, you, any other sales channel in sports collectibles, nobody else has the concept of retained ownership of their collectibles. And that's something I, I'm very proud that we brought to the industry.
1: So you introduced this concept. Of retained ownership. This is a new concept. This did not exist in in any real way, shape, or form before for any sort of alternative assets. Is that correct? So
2: it's it's existed, it's existed obviously in the financial markets and the public financial markets for very long periods of time. My understanding is that it hadn't really existed in the alternative investment category, certainly not many of the fractional companies, and definitely not any of the fractional companies that have any association with sports collectors.
1: For sure. So let's talk about this retained ownership a little bit and kind of uh, merge that into this idea of a secondary marketplace, which is when you talk about bringing liquidity to the marketplace, you know, you came from the hedge fund world, you know, hedges are famous for bringing liquidity to the marketplace, right? Um, how did you kind of go about the structuring these kind of retained ownership and, and also the secondary marketplace for buying and selling shares after an initial period of uh, you know, an IPO as you guys are, yeah, as we call it.
2: Like a lot of parts of the business, what we've done is we've taken widely accepted financial market principles and applied them to this category, of sports collectibles that I think all of us believed had a lot of room to mature and a lot of areas in which it could become more sophisticated and more financialized. We looked very closely, obviously, you know the structures that were in place with other fractional companies. and obviously, you know just in terms of how private businesses or public businesses get funded, We really applied a lot of those same principles. So now what we do is we take an item, collectible takes legal title to it. We create a separate LLC, a separate company structure for it. I shouldn't say every asset, because there are some offerings that have multiple assets in it. We've done a basket concept where it has like 30 cards in one offering, right? But for every offering that we do, it's its own separate legal entity, separate LLC structure, Separate shareholder base, the whole bit. So we literally create these holding companies and then we issue shares of the holding company to people, you know, so sort of pro rata to their ownership position. What this allowed us to do is a consigner would come to us, like, you know, for a prime example is our Mickey Mantle offering, right? We broke the all time sports fractional IPO record by around $480,000. And our initial IPO, the previous record was held by Rally Road. They did a, a Wagner card for I think 520000 We IPO'd right out of the gate a million dollars of a 53 Mantle PSA 10 baseball card. The concept was interesting. It, gave, it was a really interesting test drive for us. So we valued the entire asset at $2.5 million. The consignor was like, look, I think I... I don't want to sell the entire card. I need a little liquidity, but I think the card's going to go much higher over time. I want to keep some. So he kept 60%, one and a half million dollars in shares of the holding company. Uh And then we IPO'd 40% or a million dollars of the shares in the holding company to the public.
1: Is it common for the consigner or the original owner to retain a majority stake? It's a mixed bag. We've had some consignors
2: who keep a minority stake. Some have kept, you know, more than 50% of it. Okay. It's a bit of a trade-off. What it does allow is it allows us, in my opinion, to get the best in class supply. A lot of consignors would never consider selling unless they, you know, sort of kept control, at least the ability to veto acquisition offers if they don't deem it to be a good price. It allows us to get far better supply and probably a lot more supply over time. The con to it, I've I've been very transparent about this, is that individual investors do lose a little bit of control, right? Only in the sense where when acquisition offers or if acquisition offers are received, the majority shareholder has the ability to potentially say, I don't want to accept that acquisition price. And if that's the case, then the item will just continue to trade on, on our secondary market.
1: So let's say that a, and just because the mechanics of this are so fascinating, let's say that I'm a designer and I am willing to give up the majority stake. So I'm I'm willing to retain 40% and 60% goes to the new shareholders. How do those new shareholders decide on the fate of the asset? I mean, they're the majority, you know, shareholders of this this, essentially this company, right? How does that work? How does the, these new, these new group of shareholders, what say do they have on the direction of the asset? Do they have say, how does that work?
2: It's a very important question, obviously. So we, we, we look at it two ways. There are two potential ways to get liquidity or to potentially make money in the class. One is just through our secondary market. We could IPO something at 10, then it could trace 12 or 13. People have their own free will to decide if they want to reap and realize 2 to $3 of gains or maybe $10, $30. Who knows, right? That's one way in which shareholders always have free will is they can buy it and sell it at will in our secondary market once the second, secondary market is live. It'll go live by the end of this year. The other way where people can make money is if we receive acquisition offers for the entire collectible Mm -hmm. this is where the concept of majority minority control does come into play it really has no bearings on the secondary market whatsoever it does come into play on the acquisition side of
1: things okay
2: effectively what we do is if a legitimate and accretive acquisition offer comes into collectible to purchase outright a collectible We'll take a shareholder vote, very, very similar to what Rally Road does or, or, or a lot of these other platforms do. We'll empower all shareholders with a vote to say, look, you know, we, we got an offer, 12 bucks per share. It's X percent over the IPO value. Are you interested? Are you not interested? People will get a vote pro rata to their ownership position. Ultimately, if more than 50% of people want to sell the item at a price, it'll get passed up to our advisory committee. We have a five-person advisory committee Comprised of some of the leading auctioneers, appraisers, curators, collectors in the industry, probably collectively over 50 to 75 years of experience, which is really there to just to protect shareholders, to make sure that there's no collusion of shareholders, to make sure that all shareholders, regardless if it's the majority, are getting a good deal, right? So we'll look at things like relevant comps, both public and private market. We'll look at you know any kind of forward projections internally. That we can make, we'll look at the scarcity of the item. So really, we have this additional check and balance. So, regardless of if you know there's a lot of people who vote yes, and ultimately all shareholders are protected.
1: Interesting. And
2: if the shareholder, if the if the advisory committee thinks that not only is it a good price, but it's something worth selling at that price, then it'll get sold, and all profits uh, will get paid out pro rata to people's ownership positions.
1: Fascinating. Do they advise or approve or both? Both. Um, this is a, a licensed group, I'm assuming, that they, they actually have to sign the paperwork and make this happen.
2: They, they have to sign off on it. It's really there to protect shareholders because, you know, we, we thought about scenarios where you could have one person who retains majority control and they might want to exercise something that's not in the best interest of all shareholders. We didn't think that just because you own, you know, more stock than other people that, That should put other people at any kind of detriment. That's one extra check and balance to facilitate just kind of a free market and a fair market for for all investors in our offerings.
1: And the shareholders are just voting proportionally to their shares, just what, through the app? So we'll send
2: out a separate email effectively to only shareholders in an offering saying we've received an offer for this offering at this price. Vote yes or no. Well, We'll give them 48 hours to do so. If we, if we don't receive a vote in those forty-eight hours, we'll automatically count that as a no. And so that's that's generally how, how the process runs. So far,
1: super cool. So yeah, very similar to being a shareholder of a publicly traded company. Very cool. So are you soliciting these offers that you get for an asset after its IPO, right? Or, or are they just coming to you, and now that you guys are a new source of, of uh, leads for them? It's a little bit of
2: both, right? Ultimately, if our secondary market is functioning properly, my view is that. As a shareholder, and I've been a shareholder in some of these other fractional companies, for as many people who like accepting acquisition offers, there are a lot of other people who don't like that. My view is that ultimately, if our secondary market, if we can get this sophisticated and liquid and you know functioning as well as I think ultimately we can get it to function, I would much rather rely on our secondary market, which... Look, if people think an items worth one hundred and twenty five thousand, there's nothing stopping for people from going on the secondary market and buying it up until one hundred and twenty
1: five thousand. Or, or presumably right? just offer making a full buyout offer anyway.
2: And they're making a full buyout offer, and if the offer isn't accepted, well, it'll be disclosed to the shareholders in the offering, and chances are that that offering will trade up to that price anyway because people will get word that we received the offer at that price. My my belief is that. As someone who worked on Wall Street for a long time, I think the key to all these fractional platforms is the secondary market. That will allow not only the utmost flexibility and kind of free will for shareholders to decide when and how they want to buy, sell, trade, and hopefully take profits, right? But ultimately, it just, it just lets the market speak for itself. let it lets people speak for itself, not some random group of people who own an item and they sell it out from, under, from underneath. Again, obviously, if there's... An offer to shareholders that is accretive and beneficial, we have a fiduciary responsibility to them to at least present the offer. But, you know, it is my hope that over time that the secondary market will function the way it's supposed to function and that people can get the same outcomes with having more flexibility.
1: And now let's flip it around and talk about if the retained ownership is over 50% for the owner of the asset or the consigner. So, you know, they're looking to cash in on some of their asset, but they also want to retain that ownership or control. Would you say that's more common or or less common than uh, giving the shareholders majority? I've I've seen both.
2: I've, I've seen both.
1: Honestly, I think it's more
2: common in memorabilia at least that I've seen it's more common in memorabilia than it is in cards. I think with
1: memorabilia you have yeah a little bit of a high like a higher emotional quotient with some of these items. It's your that, jersey. Like, I mean that's yours. That's not like a card that was printed somewhere and right. you happened to sign it. It's but, you wore it. It's your yeah. Exactly. So yeah I think I think it'll probably be more common with memorabilia
2: than cards. Look, ultimately, you know, the negative for shareholders, I guess, if you want to frame it that way, is that an acquisition offer could be presented to collectible and shareholders. We'll obviously, you know, make that public that we we received an, an acquisition offer. If there's a majority control, we won't accept it, right? It, it won't be accepted, but it'll be disclosed. And ultimately, again, it comes back to this concept of the secondary market. Ultimately, the secondary market is doing its job regardless of whether it's accepted or not accepted, it should at least trade close to the price at which we received an offer, because that's what people think it might be worth.
1: In that secondary market window, how, how long does that last, well, in theory, once you release it?
2: We are, we are going to push the needle in terms of how frequent trading windows will be look at some of the other
1: platforms uh, I know Rally does once per month Yeah, Rally always does theirs at like the most god-awful times being here in Melbourne and it's like I have to like wake <laughs> up at like 3:30. I'm like what am I doing with my life <laughs> so get a piece of like some card or something I'm like my god yeah,
2: Buddhist is doing uh effectively
1: a 24-hour you can submit your bids and offers
2: 24 seven, which is really nice for, for for guys like you in Australia or in, in yeah in Australia where you don't have to be awake at certain hours to submit your bids and offers. You can just leave it out there. And if it gets hit or lifted, you're done, right? We're going to be doing far more similar to Otis's model where 24 seven, you could submit the prices you want to buy and the prices you want to sell, but we're doing our, the actual clearing, the actual transacting will be twice per week, not once per week. Okay. So 24 seven, you'll be able to submit your buys and sell orders and then twice per week, Mondays and Fridays, will kind of clear all the trades and and that's how it'll be done but I think I think ultimately all of us I'm sure all of us in the fractional space are hoping that it gets to the point where you could have a 24 7 marketplace
1: so where what's stopping know, that actually. Um, like what is actually so difficult from a, either legal or technical standpoint to, to make that happen I'm curious so there's
2: a couple factors one is uh you know how much demand that there is to be trading these things i think that's still a little bit unproven right like mm-hmm. how much how, how, how much liquidity will there be will there be enough like, can you have a functional marketplace 24-7? You don't want one person kind of like throwing out buy offers and sell offers and moving the price dramatically, right? As it is, we're going to be putting in a lot of parameters, for lack of a better term, parameters on the marketplace to, to make sure that it's at least functional and that, and that people don't get scared out of investments or pay ridiculous prices for them. So I, I think one is just demand. How much demand is there to be treating these things constantly? The other one is more kind of operational and back office, and that's, you know, trades have to clear, right? So it takes a couple days for trades to clear. So if you do it, it's hard to do it once per day as of now because the infrastructure around the industry is not quite where it is in the public markets. You can place a trade in the public markets, and it might settle a day later or maximum three days later, but you'll still be able to trade right after that here again the the infrastructure is not quite there yet so Mm -hmm. we're we're really pushing the needle with every three four business days Mm -hmm. i think it'll be hard it'll probably be hard to move it you know sort of much more frequent until the infrastructure around the
1: industry improves it's fascinating is there a clearinghouse that you use or do you work with a number of them
2: yeah we we use a few different parties we have a transfer agent we have a broker dealer, we have a custodian, so there's all these back office vendors who have to kind of work together.
1: Well, keep keep doing what you're doing. Before you know it, we'll have uh, we'll be selling options and uh, high frequency trading I on love baseball it. cards. I, love <laughs> that.
2: I mean, honestly, as someone who worked on Wall Street for a lot of years, you know, you can say what you want about derivatives and options and short selling. It does keep people honest. Yeah, it, it does lead to people expressing views that are not just, "I think it's going to go higher." Right. So, for the sanctity of like a liquid. Really sophisticated market. I Ultimately, I think we're going to get there, but it's it's just not that
1: day. Yeah, it'll take some time. That's, it's such a fascinating thing to think about, though. Let's talk about how you got that initial... I mean, you talked about that Mickey Mantle card. You said yeah. that was the record setter for all of us, this, this entire industry, this whole world. That was the most, the highest value placed on any fractional ownership uh, sports card ever? Or what's the exact...
2: Yeah, the highest sports collectible ever. Fraction lost by okay, a lot
1: wow and what was the value on that
2: the entire car was valued at two and a half million dollars we offered a million dollars of it on our first launch asset
1: all right cool did i hear that correctly that that was the first asset you launched with or
2: it was a high risk strategy <laughs> <laughs> our our view was we're a new platform we have to do something a little splashy to you know, to kind of get press and get yeah. pub, right? And we want to make a name for ourselves. We want mm-hmm. to show that we had the connections, we had the relationships, we had the supply. We want to announce yeah. ourselves. Right? That's the way so, to do it. <laughs> yeah, and you know, but again, it was, it was very risky because yeah. you know we did. Obviously, we knew we were going to get some press out of it, but the question was, can we execute? What we were either setting ourselves up for a high-profile success or high-profile embarrassment, and. Luckily, 10 days later, we sold a million dollars to over 405 shareholders. It was pretty cool. It was really cool. And I I think that spoke to the demand for fractional ownership, but also spoke to the fact that the fractional ownership concept, you know, is not just for people who are buying $25, right? Mm -hmm. Like, that's all great and fantastic. And ultimately, our mission is to democratize the industry and to give people access to these investment opportunities that they would never otherwise have. But it's also a way to just provide a different way of collecting to people who could afford to drop two and a half million dollars. We had some people who spend fifty, seventy-five, a hundred thousand dollars. And so some people I know for a fact could have bought the whole card, but didn't necessarily want to, because they would rather allocate two and a half million dollars to multiple investments or, you know what I mean? So it was, it, it proved to us that there's a marketplace for this for, both the the mass market, the micro investors, the people who could never afford it, but also a marketplace for people who just liked that it was a way to better diversify and they didn't have to worry about insurance and storage and maintenance and transaction fees. It was just, look, it's just like a brokerage account. You you spend a hundred grand on a stock and then you can spend a hundred grand on a collectible. Same thing.
1: It's like the Robin Hoodization of of literally anything. It's interesting, you know, diving into this world of alternative assets over the past five months, like, so much of this is you realize it's just how emotional it is. People aren't really investing in, you know, wine or farmland because they love, you know, Chateau Blanc 68 or goats. It's that's part of it. But it's just that emotional like resonance. But in especially in what you're doing. You know, if you're a sports fan, like it, it matters owning a part. It's, it's something to talk about at cocktail parties It's something to like, you know, hold dear. It, I mean, do you, do you feel that way as well? That the emotional side of things more than the raw returns is mm-hmm. really what, you know, matters.
2: Yeah, We use a phrase a lot, you know, with our company, which I think kind of hits the nail on the head. And that's, uh, in, my, in my opinion, sports collectibles really is the perfect intersection of passion and profits. Right? Mm-hmm. Passion and profits. Obviously, people are very passionate about sports. They're very passionate about collectibles. They're very passionate about certain athletes. But there's also profits to be made. And if you look at the data sets, they're pretty clear. The bulk amount of the investment returns or the profits typically are at the investment grade, where there's high degrees of scarcity, where there's high degrees of highly investable athletes, where... You know, so again, you know, the, the top end of the market really has not been made available to people, but that, that's where the money really has been made over time. So we're really, yeah. we're introducing obviously the ability for people of all income brackets all across the country, hopefully all across the world pretty soon to partake in the high end investment side of the business. We're also giving people access to the, the passion, to the emotional side of it, which is, you know, look, if you grew up and, you know, you grew up loving Muhammad Ali or you're parents were loving Muhammad Ali yeah. and you wanted to own a piece of his Rumble in the Jungle championship belt, you could yeah. never afford four hundred twenty grand, But like yeah. now, now you can't because yeah. it's you all you need to afford $10. So yeah I, think, yeah, I think it's a very cool combination of passion meets profits. And now we're able to do it where everyone can experience that pride of ownership of passion and profits in a way that's never been done before.
1: And I think it's pretty cool. I love it. I think it's super cool. So I grew up in Boston, actually, 23 years. So I I was thinking of uh, gifting a, uh, you know, if you had any Red Sox um, cards, I was thinking of gifting that to my mom for Christmas. I didn't see any just yet. Maybe you guys are partial to the Yankees or something. I don't know. But uh... fair warning, I I did grow
2: up in New York City. I live here currently. I've, I've always been a Yankee fan, but... The, the the only Red Sox related item we have at the moment is a little bit of a sore spot for you. We have a Mookie Betts. Oh, I saw a, that. Yeah. A Mookie <laughs> Betts Game worn glove from his 2018 season where he, he won a championship with the Red Sox. Yeah. Uh, I didn't I I didn't realize how amazing of a season Betts had in 2018. He won like huh. every award there could possibly win in one season. MVP, huh. gold glove, silver slugger, batting title. I mean, literally every, every so the cool thing is that with gloves in particular, you know, athletes go through multiple jerseys or they go through yeah. multiple baths per year, a gazillion balls, right? With gloves, a lot of these players tend to use one glove the entire season. Yeah. With bats, he wore one glove pretty much the entire season. So you're able to get you know access to that one glove that he wore throughout the entire regular season, the all-star game, the playoffs, the World Series, during arguably the most historic season in baseball history, Pretty a pretty cool item. The the other one we're gonna have, well, we had the uh, the Magic Johnson Larry Bird rookie card on the platform already. So yeah. Bird obviously is a big figure in Boston. We nice. have uh, some Larry Bird uh, game worn stuff coming down the pipeline. What I love about Boston is that you guys are very passionate fans for sure. <laughs> oh yeah. So, uh, well you have
1: a Brady, you have a Brady. I saw your Brady rookie. Brady, yeah. That's yeah. right. We have a Brady rookie card. Coming. I can't I can't I can't gift that now Bobby though, Bobby now that he's a trader. It. I can't uh <laughs> I can't in good conscience uh, invest in that one, but um, this is super cool to see. So I think the, the big question on, on on most people's minds when they hear about this stuff is how do you source, right? Like, where does it all come from? I read up on the Wilt Chamberlain, um, yeah, I love how you have the backstory of every item, which is, you know, a must have and, and really interesting. And I read kind of, you know, like how the the item got, you know, from the the home, his home to that collector to, you know, is there any sort of, Process to this, or is it just kind of helter skelter? Or do you work with people who just deal with this every day? Or just tell us everything about how you source your supply.
2: That's the one thing that really, in some ways, attracted me to collectible in the first place. Was we had all these existing relationships in place. We knew everyone from auction houses to dealers to collectors. We had a lot of existing relationships, and I, I brought a lot of my own to the table as well. But so I knew coming into this that I can we can get supply. I'm not concerned about the supply. Our seller proposition is honestly unbeatable. We charge significantly uh, less seller fees, right? We provide a lot of additional seller flexibility. We tell great stories. We promote you know, sellers that they want to be promoted. Like we have a really good seller proposition in addition to, we just had a lot of connections. So you know, for us, it was never a question of, can we get supply? It was more, can we build demand? and build our user base to the point where we can soak up supply, right? So we've been in business two months. We have
1: $30-plus million of supply already that we could thread through the marketplace. When you talk about getting the supply, though, are you buying these outright, or are you consigning them yourself?
2: The beauty of our model is, and I think that's, it's also different from a lot of the other alternative uh, marketplaces, is we can sign most of our stuff.
1: You do. Okay, so you're not actually buying a lot of these assets.
2: We've we purchased a couple assets, but by and large, it's a consignment model, which is the beauty of it is that it's far more working capital efficient. We don't necessarily have to spend, we can, but we don't necessarily have to spend our money to build best in class supply. And one of the things about the consignment model. And it all goes back to retained equity. Is that you know people who have that kind of seller flexibility to retain equity are far more willing to consign stuff than they are to make you purchase it, right? Because they because they still have some some skin in the game on it as well.
1: This is what's fascinating when, I, when I'm studying rally. I, I couldn't believe that they bought everything outright. What would even be the the pro of that? Am I missing something, or or are there cons to okay. not owning the asset?
2: So the the only honestly the only con that I've seen from consignments is that you deal with external pressures. Right. So you deal with external timelines, deadlines, external pressures uh, as it relates to consigners. You need liquidity at whatever periods of time. So it's a little bit of a schedule management, right? Like just. You know, kind of setting expectations for when consigners will have their IPOs or their offerings. But again, in my opinion, the pros of consignments far, far, far outweigh the cons. You know, you like you you look at Rally Road, and you know they raised a lot of money in their Series A. And they raised 17 million bucks in their Series B. You know, I was thinking the other day, like if you gave me, if I raised 17 million dollars, I probably could. But if you raise 17 million dollars tomorrow, like what would I even do with 17 million dollars? Right. And the honest answer is, I'm not sure. I, we yeah. don't need anywhere close to that to, to operate our business. So, you know, I think over the long term, as long as you're able to get consignments, consignments are a significantly uh, better capital efficiency way to acquire supply. And again, I really think that because this concept of retain ownership, A, we're able to get things at better prices because it's not like this one end all be all transaction where I gotta extract every dollar from it today, otherwise I'm never gonna see that money again. It's like, look, you know, I'll I'll consign 25% to you. And as the value rises over time, I can sell the balance of it. So in my opinion, not only are we able to get better supply, do it a lot more capital efficiency, uh, efficiently, I should say. But we're also, in my opinion, able to get things at really good prices because people are like, look, yeah, sure, I'll take 25% of the chips off the table at a fair price. And then over time, I can sell more on the secondary market. So I see a lot more benefits of consignment than I do acquisition. That's not to say we haven't acquired. We have an acquisition vehicle that we can acquire stuff with, but really, we haven't needed it too much
1: yet. What would even cause you to want to buy something outright? Like, is it just, it might might be too much of a pain in the butt to deal with? You know, a certain assets holder, or it's just it's it's priced low enough that you're like, you know what, this just makes sense. Is that, that sort of thing, or
2: yeah, I, I think so. I, I think it's just like the, the the ability to be opportunistic whenever you want to be, and if you see a great deal, you can just lock it up, and you don't have to worry about you know sort of worrying about it any other third parties. But again, um, you know, we have it just because it's good to have flexibility and be able to you know act when you see something attractive. But to me, you know, I think I think our model is the way to go and i think our model is a lot more sustainable over the long
1: term it's it's definitely a head scratcher why you would not want to do that yeah it's really interesting i'm going to think a little bit more about that but yeah i mean i think i think what you're doing makes a lot a lot of sense let's talk real quick about how you did get started i mean you you don't need to raise as much as let's say rally because you're not buying the uh, assets outright but you still need money to get started legal fees all sorts (laughs) of stuff how, let's talk about your funding a little bit. I noticed Emmett Smith, my one of my childhood uh, heroes, was uh, an early investor. Is that correct? Yeah, for sure he was.
2: Uh, Emmett, you know, he, he's been he's been a great partner for us on uh, a couple fronts. You know, well, a for for uh, you know a little bit of inside hardball here, where we finalized today the the first offerings of Emmett that we're going to put on the platform two really really cool offerings that I'm pretty pumped about. One is going to be the jersey he wore when he broke the NFL all-time rushing record, which is yeah. really cool. We've got. The jersey, the pants, all that stuff. The other is a basket of his two MVP trophies. so we're we're gonna be making those available to to shareholders, hopefully the next couple of months. In addition, we're gonna be doing uh, we, we call them shareholder access events, which is if you are an owner, an investor at Emmett's offering, you get to interact with Emmett in some way, shape and form, whether it's like being on a zoom call or maybe you know if you spend over a certain threshold, you'll get, you know, signed autographs, signed helmet from Emmett Smith. So we're, we're, we're playing around with all these ideas of like, how can we, you know, kind of give people additional physical ownership or some experience that is in excess of just saying, you're, you know, you own Emmett's offer. Um, yeah, Emmett's, I mean, he's a really good case study for us. You know, what, what he liked about our platform was two things. One is, you know, he's very big on authentication and promoting the hobby and doing things the, the way that they're, they should be done. I think one thing about Emmett that people don't necessarily know is that Emmett has his own uh, sports collectibles authentication business. Oh wow! Called Prova, yeah, called okay. Prova. Where and he was started because he would go to like all these these card shows, and you know he'd be signing items that people, you know, that everyone would proclaim to be like, oh, you know, Emmett, you know, here's your game worn helmet, and he could tell off the bat. He's like, I never wore that helmet. That's not a legitimate game worn item. Wow. So he noticed that you know, from a player perspective, there was a lot of a uh, fraudulence on the market. And you know he did it more kind of out of his love of the industry and to protect players and fans and anything else. So he started his own authentication company. He's very big on kind of moving the ball forward when it comes to authentication of the industry. So he liked he liked the fact that we were SEC uh, qualified and that things had to go through a, a much more stringent process to get on the platform in the first place. So that was what he liked, um, you know, sort of part one of it. Part two of it, and I fa- I found this interesting, was he was saying how athletes, right, even Hall of Famers like Emmett Smith, who've done a million signings and have relationships with eBay and all these other companies, you know, he said that athletes, you know, in a large degree have no idea what their collectibles are worth. Mm. And oftentimes they get taken for a ride.
1: By who? By by, by, the, by, by, like a broker or like a um, an auction yeah, house? Yeah, by,
2: by, by auction houses who put lesser reserves on them, by eBay, by by dealers, by collectors, or even people internally, people say, oh, you know, Amin, it's worth 20 grand and then they go they buy it for 20 grand and they sell it back for eighty. So he was just saying that, you know, a lot of times athletes have no clue what their stuff is worth. There's no fair, you know, way for them to retain upside in the items that they're selling. And there's no real good way for them to share their collectibles with fans, right? Who've supported them throughout their careers and to keep their career relevant and contemporary. So what Amin liked about our platform is he can sell some of the item he doesn't sell all the equity in the item, so he can retain equity ownership and upside if the item is worth less than he thinks it is then he'll still make money over time yeah he can also you know do some storytelling and and kind of tell you know the story of his career and himself he could keep his career relevance he could give back to the fans so there's all these other you know aspects to this that 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 really have nothing to do with the actual money part of it but so yeah so, so, so Emmy came at this and And, you know, we we connected with him and he loved, you know, A, the fact that it was, you know, more regulated and, you know, sort of better chances of the items being fully authentic to protect confidence of the consumers. And B, that, you know, athletes had now a way to connect directly with fans who want to invest in their careers, but, but also a way to kind of maintain some of the upside of their collectibles over time.
1: I, I love what you said about, I mean, there's an emotional side to the the seller side on this as well, right? Mm-hmm. Like you, you, what you said about Emmett um, connecting with his fans and giving back in a way. Um, so aside from the price discovery and ending the problem of brokers screwing you over and all of that and unauthenticated crap flooding the market, there's also just like an emotional side to this from the seller side saying like, sure. you know what, like sure. I don't want this to go to some faceless you know, for sure. um, that's really cool. That's compelling, I bet, for a lot of these folks, huh?
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I think I think Emmett. You know, we we are always talking to athletes, for sure. Emmett will definitely be our first kind of case study into this. But you know, our anticipation is that this sort of direct to the fans athlete memorabilia aspect of the business could turn into a pretty meaningful thing. Is
1: there any chance of, you know, I mean, so much of the world's collectibles don't live with professional collectors. They live in like my basement. They live in hopefully not my basement, but hopefully, you know, on the mantle somewhere nice. But the point is they live in people's homes. They live, you know, now now you've got this platform and, and you're, you know, giving price discovery to the world. And I bet you there's a lot of people frothing at the mouth saying like, look, I've got a, uh, Jordan signed basketball from way back, like my dad gave to me. Maybe that's worth something. Maybe I can sell it to to collectible. Is that something you guys are ever thinking of doing? Is maybe uh, sourcing from your fans directly, from your users directly?
2: Yeah, for sure. That it, it's definitely something we thought about. You know, there obviously is a minimum value threshold that it makes sense economically for us to do. As a result of the fact that we're SEC qualified, there obviously you know every offering we do, there's some fixed fees. There's legal fixed fees, there's broker dealer fixed fees, There's securities work. So it doesn't really make sense for us to kind of go down the path unless items are like minimum 12 grand, 15 okay. grand in that ballpark. Yeah. But you know, we, we've definitely thought about doing a service where, you know, people could you know, effectively give us items to kind of figure out where the market is for it, right? And, and, and to kind of indicate, you know, what demand is for certain items and at what price points, where that's something we've, we have the ability to do. We're kind of waiting until our our user base builds up to the point where we can give people really good data points into, uh, you know, how much demand at what prices. So certainly a service that we've thought about. I think one that we, we could also make money from over time.
1: Really cool. You know, you guys definitely have to stay focused in the short term. It's really good to think about these these long term things. Without divulging future plans, is there anything you can yeah. talk about aside from the secondary market in terms of what's coming down the pipe? Maybe next six months or so.
2: One one thing that you're going to see a lot of, which we announced uh, yesterday, is you know our partnership with, with Sports Immortals, right? Which I think is going to be a really really cool thing. I mean, they're you know they're a relative unknown commodity to people who are not in the sports collectibles industry at the high end, but they're they're considered to be. In a lot of cases, the largest and the most diverse sports memorabilia collection in the world. I read somewhere they have a million artifacts in their collection. They have an appraised value, I've heard, between 125 to $250 million. We have an exclusive five-year relationship with them. And again, I was down there for two days during the peak of COVID back in June. And I can't even describe it. It was honestly a jaw-dropping experience seeing... The, the stuff that they had, so through that partnership, it, it, it could keep us busy for decades. <laughs> so you, you'll see a lot of a lot of uh, amazing, amazing items from Sports Immortals coming, which will be very cool. We're working on a couple uh, additional athlete relationships, which uh, I, I hope we can announce sometime shortly. So you'll see that. You'll see our secondary market. Yeah. We have a whole live events part of the business that we formulated kind of right as COVID was beginning. Yeah, I you know, saw very that. Yeah, the traveling show- galleries, traveling showcases, exhibitions. Dinner series. Like we have a, you know, we have a lot of ideas for this. Obviously, it's a little bit on hold with COVID right now. I think there's a lot of ways to take this business. You know, again, I think the combination of sports and passion and profits. What I love about sports is there's always stuff going on, there's always events happening, there's a constant stream of content, a constant stream of of calendar, so you know, I see all these other fractional companies trying to to be everything for everyone. Right, mm. Rally's doing a gazillion different types of alternative assets. Yeah, you're really getting into you know art and uh, you know cultural collectibles and sports. To me, I think there's something to be said for focus yeah. and for going deep in a market as opposed to going you know, sort of an inch an inch thin, a mile wide. I think there's a ton of opportunity sticking to our lane, doing doing what we do best, utilizing our connections. And going deep, deep into sports. I think the, I think the sports market, you know, by some estimates, you know, on the low end, I've heard a few billion. It was actually Collectible, who created the first data series indicating that the sports memorabilia market was $5.4 billion. I see that statistic everywhere. It's probably a lot bigger now because that was done probably three, four years ago. There are some people, you know, I heard a podcast with Dr. James Beckett, who, you know, for, yeah. for who's the founder of Beckett magazine, who indicated he thought the sports card market alone was $100 billion. So, you know, that my, my point in saying this is I think sports is a big opportunity in and of itself. And I feel great about the way that collectibles positioned in the category. And I think there's a lot to be said for focus and we're very focused and we're going to go deep and we're going to be the best in our category. And I think that that's something to be said for that.
1: That's awesome. That's really great to hear. Yeah, that's really cool. Do one thing and do it extremely well. Well, that's it. That was going to be my last question is where you going to, you know, had you considered branching out um, in the way that let's say Rally's done. But honestly, it's a very uh, good point. You can argue that you know, you can you run the risk of spreading yourself very thin doing that, and it's very wise, I think, to to stick to what you know and, and are clearly experts in. Going back all the way to the data aggregation days.
2: That that's not to say that we could never go into other directions. Of course, I mean, I'm pitched every day on uh, on art or comics or Pokemon. I mean, so anytime we want to go in that direction, there's nothing stopping us from doing so. But you know, we're we're, we're focused. We have a big runway. We have a lot of inventory. We're building out our customer base. That's loves what we're doing and specifically what we're doing. So I wouldn't ever rule it out, you know, kind of expand to other collectibles. But in my opinion, there's no need to. And I think I think there's a long runway for us in this category. And again, I, I like where we sit. I think we have a really capital efficient business model. And we've, we've got the connections in place to make some, some serious headway
1: here. Well, it has been an absolute pleasure uh, awesome. talking Thanks. to you. I think this is fantastic. I love what you guys are doing. I look forward to bringing it to the readers. I think the readers are going to love it. I look forward to doing a real deep dive on the app. And thank you once again for your time. It's been a pleasure.
2: Thanks, yeah. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks.
0: Thanks for tuning in. We sure hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please be sure to subscribe and give us a nice review for this podcast. It means a lot. And remember, you can find a transcription of this episode along with all past issues of our weekly newsletter at our website alternativeassets.club See you next time!